I'm going to try to make a comparison here. I, I mean, I, I recognize that what I'm about to say, they're both very different plays, but I think it's an interesting comparison. I want to think about for a second Lorraine Hansberry's you know, famous play, A Raisin in the Sun. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. It's been a it's been a fun month so far. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's been great. We are in the middle of our themed month, which is a regular tradition on No Script. Each season, we spend one month, four episodes discussing plays which have something in common. That something has been a huge, wide variety of things. Um, Sometimes it is a particular playwright or a particular theme or a particular element. And in this case, we are talking about a, a very broad but kind of particular form, something that we've done before. This is Mini Month Part 2. Yeah, Mini Month Part 2. We've uh, dwelt on this theme before, engaging shorter style plays, one-act plays sometimes, but also just short plays, um, and kind of engaging with that that format and what it does to both our conversation as kind of uh, engaging just the story of the script, the written word of the script on the page, but also imagining how it it, uh, works its way out on the stage as well. We've had a couple good uh, kind of set up conversations for this month. So if you want kind of the full context for why we're chatting through um, uh, sm- short plays in mini month, uh, you could go back to the first episode of the month. I believe that's two episodes back and uh, and you can check in with that there. But uh, but yeah, suffice to say, we're, we're stoked to be able to have these uh, kind of different lens conversation about uh, a different uh, format of theater, both in the writing of it and also in the production of it. Yeah, that's right. We we have, for the first kind of half of this mini-month, we've looked at, like, very short plays, just sort of 10-minute plays, and uh, we talked about those plays and how they compare to each other. A really, really famous 10-minute play and maybe a lesser-known 10-minute play, and, and that was sort of an interesting form conversation. And now, on the back end, we're looking at still short plays, still in that category, but more traditional one acts. These are plays that, you know, probably run from half an hour to an hour somewhere in there. They're certainly going to be longer, more character development, more deep sort of world building than you're going to get in a 10 minute play, but still a kind of distinct experience from a full length play. And as our sort of way into this form or way back into it after our last mini month so many seasons ago. Today we're talking 
talking about a really famous one act from kind of the world stage. This is a play from Ireland rather than America. We don't do a ton of plays from outside of America. We're American artists and, and scholars and such, and so we're kind of located within our world. But as we were doing Mini Month, it felt like this was probably the time to do this particular play, uh, which is such an influential and impactful play in the war in sort of the world stage of theater. But outside of doing it as part of Mini Month, I don't know when we would have had occasion to come to it because it's such a unique, compact little piece of theater. Of course, today we're talking about Singh's famous play, Riders to the Sea. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 unique in its in its uh, subject matter in the length of the play. So so uh, you know maybe I I I could imagine a different themed month we'd have uh, the chance to talk about this play, whether that's like historical plays or something like that. Um, uh, but but really glad that we're getting the chance to come around to it. Uh, this play um, is 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 such a prevalent one. Uh, I know I've seen it. I think multiple times. I've certainly read it in in different uh, classes and different settings. I like. I, I enjoy Singh as an author in general and the way he plays with sadness and tragedy. And uh, and in this case, a really particular, again, in the short form play format, a really particular moment within one family's life and really kind of digging into it and getting to explore so many themes within the context of that moment is such an exciting play. Um, so, so, yeah, I'm really grateful for the chance to get to talk about it this week. Yeah, well, and I'm really already sort of diving into the form discussion to think about what you just said. This play is really two moments, or I mean, there's probably more than that. But if you think about, we've talked about these 10-minute plays, which often rely on this sort of uh, build up to an execution of some sort of central moment or element that really defines this those really concise pieces. And in this play, in the longer format, has occasion to offer us two such moments and then kind of put them in conversation with each other, right? I mean, to, to steal from the synopsis later on, it's not just one son that dies in this play or that is lost in this play. It's two. And it's the fact that the two come so back to back that makes this play what it is. And of course, in a, in a shorter format, if 10-minute plays had had the popularity that they had had when Singh wrote the play, you know, more than 100 years ago or whatever, uh, it, it would... It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have been able to function in that way. It's only the sort of longer format, and by longer, of course, that's in context of short plays, that we're able to get that kind of execution. Yeah, yeah, the kind of fu full scope of of, uh, of of this family's interaction. Yeah, yeah. I, I okay. I'm, I'm excited to I'm excited to jump into the conversation. Before we do, <laughs> though, as <laughs> I always have, I, I love these 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 like action packed episodes <laughs> where we we're, we're yeah, going to be yeah. chatting about uh, so many things. We, we jump in right away, and then we're like, okay, let's 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 be sure to to kind of get through some of the things we do at the start of the show. One of which is in particular thanking all of our dear dear patrons over at Patreon.com/slash No Script Podcast for helping helping out this show and becoming patrons over there. Uh, thank you all so much for making the choice to support the No Script community in this way. We love getting to do the show. We love getting to talk about scripts. We love getting to talk about themes and uh, kind of connecting dots between a lot of different plays and also offering a wide variety of plays and genres uh, throughout the season. And the patrons at patreon.com slash no script podcast make that happen. Um, 
you, if, if you are looking for a way to help out the show, looking for a way to just get involved in the show a little bit more, Patreon is a great way to do that. We have a number of different tiers of membership over there, the lowest one being just $1, and that $1 amount uh, helps out enormously. There's lots of fees associated with running a podcast and picking up scripts and chatting about all these things and some significant time into the production of this podcast, and uh, it helps out the show so much if you uh, become a patron of the show. You get access to patron-only posts, you get access to scripts ahead of time at some tiers will will thank you individually on the on the podcast at some point for your uh, patronship at different tiers uh so lots of cool stuff to find over there those of you who are patrons already know what's going on um if you're looking for a way to uh jump into the no script community a little more it's a great way to do it head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and we will see you over there thanks to everybody that supports us on patreon you make doing the show possible and now back to the script here we go. Okay, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in these mini-month episodes, we are coming to, I think it'll be a total of four new playwrights over each of the four weeks. I don't think we're returning to any playwrights in our time. So, as is typical on No Script, we do a kind of a brief playwright introduction. And um, because these episodes are abbreviated because of how we're running mini-month, these playwright introductions are also going to be very abbreviated. The context sections are. We're not going to do the, the really kind of full backgrounds or the fullest that we can get backgrounds that we do in our longer episodes. So just a heads up on that. This is going to seem for a playwright like Singh, who is hugely influential. Uh, this is going to seem like yeah, we're... Yeah iconic guy yeah that we're giving him kind of short shrift and that's probably true to some degree but thus is the limitations of the format and we will stick to them so uh jm uh, singh or john millington singh is an irish playwright he, he's part of this movement called the irish literary revival um he he was he died very young so he really didn't write the kind of full library of works that we see from other playwrights of the time. But he still had uh, a fair amount of stuff produced over the course of his life. So you're going to recognize plays like In the Shadow of the Glen, Riders to the Sea, of course, The Playboy of the Western World, uh, The Well of the Saints, The Tinker's Wedding. Um, he wrote a lot about um, the the conflict perhaps or the tension or the the reality of catholicism in uh in in rural ireland in in these sort of small town places where they held different you know the catholics would have referred to them as pagan religious uh practices, pagan religious traditions and rituals. I'm not sure that language is really appropriate anymore, but that's certainly how Catholicism would have defined them. And so the tension between these other religious practices, these long-standing traditions in these small Irish communities, and the the kind of prevalent Catholicism of the time. And you'll see that come through in a lot of this stuff. It's certainly going to come through in our conversation today. Um, he studied at Trinity College, Dublin, which, of course, is a big name in and of itself, um, and ended up studying music in Germany for a while. He went around the... Um he went around Europe sort of doing different studies and, and looking at different cultures. Um, but he was uh, suffering from, in, in the long run, from uh, Hodgkin's. And that 
that sort of Hodgkin's-related cancer that he experienced was a really, of course, painful part of his life. Um, And it it impacted his ability to, uh, to travel to some degree. But in order to write this play, he ends up traveling kind of in the early part of his career to a place called the Aran Islands. Um, in your head, you might think about the, uh, the, the recent Oscar-nominated movie, The, the Banshees of Irishine. Uh, I think that, I, in fact, I know because I know several of them, that folks who come from Ireland are not at all happy about the presentation of these rural Irish communities in that movie. But uh, yeah. if, if you need <laughs> to think in terms of stereotype and trope about the kind of community that the Aran Islands are and that this play is set, in, you might think of that movie. Um, so he writes a book, Singh writes a book about the Aran Islands. Um, it's, a, it's a famous book. Uh, Yeats does the illustrations. Uh, Singh calls it this sort of first serious piece of, of writing that he had done. And out of that experience, having traveled to, lived in the Aran Islands, studied the Aran Islands, he writes the two plays, um, Riders to the Sea and The Shadow of the Glen. And Riders of the Sea, of course, is the play that we're talking about today. It first was produced in February of 1904 in Dublin. It has gone on to be produced worldwide um, because of its its incredible poetry, its incredible heartbreaking sadness, its portrayal of these uh, desperate uh, uh you know, desperately impoverished communities. It's been adapted into film and opera and dance. I mean, over the 120-ish years of its life, it's it's really, um, it's, it's been one of the most famous plays to come out of Ireland. Not perhaps the, but certainly in that group. Um, uh, Riders to the Sea is also famous for its presentation of keening. Right, this this Irish tradition of lament. It's not just an Irish tradition, but it is famously Irish. This tradition of families keening at the wake of their dead loved ones. It's a it's a way of expressing grief. It's it's a public encounter with grief and mourning. And this play ends with this staged, famous portrayal of this uh, long-standing tradition of keening. I'm sure we will talk about that some in our conversation, but that that's sort of the most eagle-eye view of Singh and the life that Riders to the Sea has had. It is a major piece of work, despite its very, very short length. Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty short length. Um, uh, I think one of its at least current... Um, modes of existence is oftentimes in college theater. Um, this is a great show for college theater to do because you have um, <laughs> you have some dialect work, pretty significant dialect work. It's short and sweet. It's really dramatic. Lots of unity. Um, uh, if you if you know the unities, uh, unity of place and time, all of those. It's in it's in one setting the whole time. So so I, that's the context that I've seen it a lot. But it continues to be produced. I think uh, it's, it has some has had some films made of it. So yeah, super super cool script for those reasons, and it continues to have a life of its own. Um, I'm going to jump into the uh, synopsis real quick. Again, we're doing abbreviated versions of synopsises, so hang on, everybody. Um, 
the uh, Riders to the Sea uh, is is a play that focuses on a family. Um, <clears throat> this this family uh, is on an island on the west of Ireland, um, and it all takes place in one room on one day. Um, sometimes significantly in the past, I would say. Um, uh, probably uh, Singh was writing this to be contemporary in its time, um, and so m- most most people tend to <laughs> uh, adopt the time frame that the play was written in. So a while ago. Um, the uh, family is going through a moment of uh, of uh, kind of liminal grief. Uh, they have lost uh, contact with a son of theirs who was on the sea. Now we find out throughout the play um, that that this is a repeating theme for this family. There have been multiple, many sons in this family lost to the sea. The father was lost to the sea. The father-in-law of this family was lost to the sea. So uh, this is a common theme for this family. And the main characters that we're interacting with are, are um, Moria, who is the, the mother, we have a Kathleen, who is her daughter, Nora, who is her younger daughter, and then her kind of last present son, Bartley, also appears throughout the course of the play. The opening scenes uh, were uh, with Nora and Kathleen, and Nora and Kathleen are talking about how their brother, Michael, has gone missing. And he's been missing, I think, for nine days. It's been a while, and they're, they're not really sure where he is. They know he went out on a ship. Um, they know that he's he was on the sea and they haven't heard from him since. So they're kind of waiting to hear word um, all the while kind of knowing what the word will be once they hear it. Moria has been in kind of a, uh, a mourning, even though she does not know for sure that he's dead. Um, but what has changed today is uh, Nora brings a, a garment home to Kathleen or a package home to Kathleen. They don't really know it's a, what, what is in it. They say that the young priest in town has received this package from a body that um, was uh, found, I believe, up in Donegal, which is important because it's many days away, many days up shore. So uh, Mike, if it was Michael, Michael would have died at sea and then blown through the waves many days up shore, had been found, and they have some garments trying to identify this body. Um, that body was buried up where it blew ashore, um, so they're just trying to figure out who it is. They're worried that uh, showing this uh, package to Moria would uh, kind of advance her grief even more, so they keep it secret from her to start with um, and try to find a time to look at the garments when Moria isn't in the room. Moria comes in, she's in mourning for Michael. They're all sort of in mourning for Michael because they kind of know, but some of them are kind of holding on to some hope as well. Bartley comes into the scene. Bartley is the last remaining uh, son of this family, and he's trying to sell some of their livestock to get some money. Um, and uh, he says, today's the day. I got to get to the ship that's going to go to this fair there, where there's going to be a, a place to sell the horses, and it'll, it'll be good for that. So he um, is kind of uh, getting ready to head out onto the sea again. He has to hit and get the ship to get to the fair to get there in time. And he's taking two horses with him, a red mare and uh, a gray pony. Um He's warned by his mother, Moria, that the wind is not great today. The sea is is killing us. You shouldn't go. Stay home. Please stay home. Um, there's some kind of back and forth between uh, him and Moria and Kathleen also. Kathleen kind of weighs into it, um, uh, saying things like, you know, it's 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 this obviously isn't going to work, Moria. There's no way that uh, any any anyone can tell young men to not stay off to stay off the sea. They will continue to go onto the sea to find uh, the opportunity that the sea offers and the, st- the opportunity for, for, um, life, basically the, the money that it brings and the food that it brings, etc. This, uh, leads to a kind of a tense leaving for, uh, Bartley who leaves without more, uh, Moria's blessing. The family kind of 
reels from that after Bartley leaves. Um, he also leaves without having eaten. So Nora notices this and gets some uh, food uh, ready for him and gives it to Moria. Kathleen says, Moria, go find him at the well as he's leaving, as he's watering the horses before he has to go. Bless him on his way. Give him some food and maybe we'll divert some disaster because you haven't blessed him on his way out the door. Um, so eventually Moria uh, does leave to try to bring that bread and that blessing to Bartley, which leaves time for Nora and Kathleen to look at the package. And they open up the package. It's a shirt. They don't recognize the shirt. They're trying to compare it to something or other. Um, there's also, though, a stocking, a sock in there that Nora does recognize. She recognizes it because of the stitch pattern. She notices her 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 pattern and her mistake in the pattern. And that confirms for them that this is, in fact, Michael's clothing, that Michael is, in fact, dead and buried um, up shore away. And uh, they they begin the process of truly grieving that. However, they still want to keep it from Moria because Moria is in a particularly nervous place, especially with Bartley going out on the sea. Um, so they decide to try to hide it from her. However, Moria returns shell-shocked from uh, wherever she has been. She says that she tried to uh, uh, kind of uh, bless Bartley on his way by, but that she had this vision of Michael on the gray pony which uh, uh, was behind Bartley. Bartley was riding on the red mare. So she sees uh, this vision of Michael following Bartley. She comes back. She's shell-shocked from it. She's trying to process all this. Uh, as she's trying to process all this, uh, Kathleen and Nora try to tell her that, well, it couldn't possibly have been Michael. Michael is dead. We just found out. And eventually it comes out that they have the garment there. He's buried up sea. They start as, as uh, this interaction is continuing um, to hear the keening, the kind of wailing or the people beginning to come towards the house. Not really sure what it is. They look out and they see them carrying something that looks a lot like a body up towards the house. Um, and they wonder if it's Michael. They come into the door. Uh, eventually, members of the community tell this this really kind of tragic and and uh, act of, of almost seems like fated death on this family of uh, Bartley being thrown uh, into the sea by the gray pony um, uh, into the sea. He's swept out to the rocks and he dies on the sea, uh, basically just offshore. He wasn't even on the boat yet. Um, so uh, they begin uh, the process of dealing with that reality. You have a, a number of scenes in this, this moment where Moria is kind of recounting her family's, basically curse, although I don't think she necessarily says that word, but the way that her entire family has been lost to the sea, essentially, and that now she need not all the men stay awake. Family. Yes, yes, all the men in her family have been lost at sea. She need not stay awake any longer to kind of prey on these specifically cursed nights. Like she mentioned Samhain over and over again, which is the uh, festival that predate that Halloween is based on. Um, and, uh, so, so she, she says, I don't need to worry about that anymore. All the people who would die on the sea have died on the sea. Um, and, and it kind of ends in this, uh, basically a start of a wake for Bartley and also kind of tangentially for Michael who isn't there. It's, oh my gosh, the, the, the visual image of Bartley's body. And then they lay Michael's bundle of clothes onto yeah. it is, oh boy, that is a real Striking. moment. Yeah. That, yeah. Oh gosh. 
Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, so, so yeah, that's that's kind of the scope of the script. It ends there, um, and uh, you're you're kind of left with the wondering of what's what awaits for this family as a result of it. The other uh, prop that I'll just note that I've neglected to kind of weave into the story is the whole time there are these white boards there in the in the uh, the the house that they live in, and these white boards were bought ahead of time thinking that they would need to bury Michael in a coffin. So they bought really nice kind of whitewash boards to bury Michael. Um, turns out uh, uh, it, it, the, it gets assigned to a number of different people. Um, uh, Moria almost claims them for herself. Eventually, I believe they're used for Bartley. Um, but uh, that's the other kind of uh, really visual, uh, looming presence of uh, death and, and, uh, and dying that is a part of this family's life at the moment. Yeah, it's actually a, a fairly moving moment when one of the daughters, Kathleen, asks one of the men of the village who've come in to make a coffin for Bartley out of the white boards. Because as you've described, it's gone from being like this coffin for Michael, but now they know that Michael has actually had a clean Christian burial, they say, in the in the in a different part of the island where his body had washed up. And then Moira claims that because she's gonna lose all of her sons, then she might as well die is sort of her lament. Uh, but then they, she sort of makes a decision for life and to move on and to 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 try to to find a way forward. And so that coffin can finally be ascribed to Bartley's body. But of course, they can't make it. I mean, there there is this uh, hugely patriarchal society where the men you know fished and and brought in an income. So what's going to happen to this collection of women now that all the men in their family have died is really kind of concretized. I'm not sure that's a real word, but it's like sure, made. Sure. Concrete in this, like having to ask someone else in the village to make the coffin because that was going to be Bartley's job to make the coffin out of the whiteboards for Michael, but now he's dead too. So the coffin of the whiteboards for Michael is going to be used for him, but someone else has to make it. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. The way that it just kind of trades hands and responsibilities and assigned who's who it's assigned to is this this. Uh, it's it's both both really master certainly really masterful in the use of a of a prop on stage and also just like this this heavy weight of this family like hold having to hold the physical manifestation of death for them um in in their context every day and pass it along to the next <laughs> the next person that needs it um which is a, a kind of a an alarming amount of them end up potentially needing it and this relationship that they have to have with the sea, right, which is the way in which they make money and travel. Both, I mean, they can't just be trapped on this island. They need to do commerce with the mainland, so they need the sea for that. They need the sea for fishing, for all that kind of stuff. To, so it, it is their livelihood, and at the same time, it is the thing that is killing them one by one. There is, I think it goes kind of undernoted in the script, but I, I find that it just hits me really hard every time. They finally, the, the daughters, Nora and Kathleen, once Moira has gone out of the room, decide to open up the bundle of clothes, like you described, to discover if they were Michael's or not. But they can't get the knot untied because it has been yeah. uh, like so the salt water, the salt in the rope has like made it impossible to untie. So they have to cut it open. And as like a visual, spatial, embodied metaphor, the rope being like too full of salt to untie is just like... It's brilliant. I mean, it's such incredible, yeah. like three dimensional poetry. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so, so the, 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 the force of 
the or the, or the presence and the ear um irreparable isn't the right word the the um inability to fight the power of nature um is such a prevalent theme in this play you have you have the sea as the manifestation of that you also have wind as a manifestation of that there's a number of times when you get the door like flies open um and are and it's particularly called for multiple times in the script for the door to be kind of flung open with the wind and you get this sense that this 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 these these people really that certainly this family but the people of this island are all the time dealing with the reality that they are at the whim of this force around them and it, and it kind of ties ties again into what you were saying at the beginning uh, about the kind of tension between Catholicism and Christianity and these kind of older traditional beliefs that these people had and the blending of those things because all these characters I think uh, attest to being some degree of Catholic they they are reverent of the priest they use holy water um and yet also you have especially Moria um and uh probably a little bit of Kathleen too um pretty steeped in traditions and and uh, at one point uh, you have Moria talk, certainly Moria talking about the winds. It's a bad day to travel. The wind is in this direction, etc. You have Kathleen talking about um, how terrible it is if if Michael is 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 not the, the the body that's buried up there. That he's just unmourned out on the sea with the black hags that that dwell over the sea as his only mourners. So you have this old tradition mixed into the new at the time uh catholicism and uh you kind of have that that in, at play with the knowledge that nature is pushing on them at all times and there that that comes into real sharp focus very early in what i think is just a brilliant moment i'm probably going to say that a lot uh so nora um has come back from talking with the priest in part she's brought back this bundle of clothes or is it Kathleen that brings back the clothes? I'm trying to remember the specific. Yeah, no, I'm right. So Nora has come back in after bringing back the bundle of clothes, and she talks about talking with the priest in town. Apparently the priest is the one that's brought these clothes for her. And she said to the priest, hey, can you try to talk Bartley out of going on the sea today? Um, the sea is really rough. There's like, it's, it's, the wind is up. It's, it's dangerous. And he's literally the last man alive in terms of making an income and, 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 and having that sort of social power that being male ascribes in that, in that society. And please don't let him go. He, he's committed to going, but it's dangerous. And he's literally the last of them alive. We need him to not go. And the priest says, this is Nora, um, telling us what the priest says. I won't stop him, says he, but let you not be afraid. Herself does be saying prayers half through the night, and Almighty God won't leave her destitute, says he, with no sons living. Right? So the priest, at the very beginning of the play, the symbol of Catholic power, says, well, God is going to protect her from losing all her sons. And then as you think about this play in context of this tension, of course, the sea does in fact claim all the sons. So what is Singh saying about the role of God in this culture, about the power of the, the, God, the God of the Catholic religion being offered to these people, you know, in context of their real lived lives where all of their sons do in fact die? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sitting right in the tension. Um, I feel like it does an admirable job of sitting right in that tension. <laughs> um, uh, because, because while it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, uh, it, 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 it cer certainly shows that in fact, um, <laughs> the, the prayers or, or perhaps God does not, um, uh, hold back, 
the the death of these sons. Um, it also shows these these uh, these characters kind of really uh, the, the Keening scene at the end valuing um, the the uh, kind of proper way to send off these people and you see the worth of that to them as well. So it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating play for that um, kind of sitting in the tension of that historical moment of, of uh, belief systems kind of uh, meeting each other, uh, sometimes clashing, sometimes uh, uh, kind of intertwining and pieces of it still remaining in amidst with the new. Yeah. I, I want to point us uh, towards thinking about the form a little bit. And, and one way I want to do that is I'm going to try to make a comparison here. I, I mean, I, I recognize that what I'm about to say, they're both very different plays, but I think it's an interesting comparison. I want to think about for a second, Lorraine Hansberry's you know, famous play, A Raisin in the Sun, because in A Raisin in the Sun, there is this sense in which the family is waiting for the check. Right. That is the that's the thing. They spend a lot of the play waiting for this check, this piece of news, this thing that is going to change their lives. And because Raisin in the Sun is a full length play and in fact, kind of a long full length play, there's a lot of time for the waiting to be part of the story. Now, you want to, I just want to compare that. And again, I know they're very different plays, but if you think about Riders to the Sea, we don't see the waiting period. Michael has been lost for some time, and they have been waiting in this, you described it in your summary as a liminal space, which is, is really poetic and beautiful. They've been waiting for this news of what happened to Michael for a long time. And when the thing finally shows up that's going to give them the answer to this question, in this abbreviated form where this play is, you know, 15 to 20 pages, it runs about 40 to 45 minutes, the play starts with that thing coming in the door. The waiting is implied by the rest of the, the, the conversation, the action around the thing that finally comes in. We see how much they've longed and are desperate for this confirmation, even as the confirmation is going to tell them that their brother is dead. But that waiting period in this format is just sliced off. We don't, we don't have time for it. So instead, we start when the thing comes in the door that's going to change life. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, the... You know, you, you, you imagine uh, there would be a full length play with this family, uh, maybe starting prior to Michael leaving or something like that. And you get to hear a little bit more about the kind of desperate situation of this family. You get to interact more with <laughs> with uh, more of the family history and stuff like that. But that's that's not this play. This play is the the uh, the, the the punch at the end when the the, the big inciting incident happens <laughs> um, and and uh, the li lives of these characters are changed ultimately forever um they're changed C certainly i imagine anytime any of the any of their family has uh, died on the sea their lives have been changed forever but this is a, a, a really different <laughs> uh, uh, there's there's a there's a, a note of finality in the final passing of bartley for this family now what now what exactly happens to them how they how they continue we don't get to know but we know we're, we're pretty certain that those people seeking the uh the um both the i don't know th this family isn't really seeking fortune but the, the the life and the sustenance that is necessary in traversing the sea is is done for them um, so something else is 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 uh, happening as a result of it and and moira's speeches at the end about um, there is a, a sort of 
a real desperation and panic and uh, overtaking grief that she experiences when she doesn't know what's going to happen next when she sees this vision and she knows that it means Bartley's going to die. But one of the really major, fascinating changes in the play, that, and I think it's so powerful for an actor to walk through this, is the way in which Moira's sense of the world shifts when she knows Barley, when the body comes in. She begins the keening process. Um, she, her outlook on this situation, it, 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 to me, it, it's... it's I don't want to say that it's surprising or shocking or anything like that because that, to me, sounds like it's unjustified, which it's not at all. That's not what I'm saying. But it is... Uh, it's a shift. It's a very major shift in the course of this character and her perspective on their deaths. And it so clearly defines the end of the play. This movement from unknowing, from worry and suspicion to the knowing and the moving forward. And it's not like... That she just moves on when her son's body comes in the door. That's not it at all. But the the monologues that she gives at the end, they remind me actually of the end of Uncle Vanya in some way. The final little chunk is uh, Moira, the keening process is beginning for in the community around her. She says, Michael has a clean burial in the far north by the grace of the Almighty God. Bartley will have a fine coffin out of the white boards and a deep grave, surely. What more can we want than that? No man at all can be living forever, and we must be satisfied. I mean, it's a very different place for her at the end of this play than she was even just a page and a half before. And in this abbreviated format, it's that change. Again, it's it's usually only just like one change that moves a play towards its ending in these short formats. And in this play, we get two. The discovery of Michael and then the discovery of Bartley and how each of those deaths one after the other impacts her sense of the world, her sense of her life going forward. And you get you get two within two different contexts too, because you could because of by virtue of Moria being out of the room when you discover Michael's confirmation of death, you get uh, Kathleen and and Nora's uh, kind of realization and movement to a new stage as well. In that, I, I I really like what you've highlighted there the 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 movement of Nora at the end, or I'm sorry, of of, well, of Moria at Moria, the yeah. end, yeah, to a. Um, to a, a a completely different mode of being, I think speaks to the clarity that comes when a known grief settles in um, and the the uh, the dissonance and the kind of chaos that an unknown grief brings about, um, which you kind of see in Moria. She she doesn't know exactly what she's grieving for much of the play, for a good chunk of the play. And finally, when when the most horrible version <laughs> of the future emerges again, um, you have this kind of clarity come over Moria um, uh, that the, and, and she kind of settles into this known grief in a really different way. And, and it's, it's this this play often gets um, gets talked about with tragedy near its near its uh, definitions. And and I think you really got to hang on to something around that, because the kind of pivotal moment of, or a pivotal moment of tragedy of the world being better off as a result of the tragic hero's sacrifice is a hard one to land <laughs> in this play. It's hard to imagine uh, the world being better off for these characters. Um, and uh, some of the analysis in there could be towards the, the movement towards a known grief. We know how to grieve now um, would be a way to, to look at the world 
um, that they're in as a result of the climax. And these communities have real established patterns of grief that's that are part of this play, right? That the keening staging at the end of the play is a huge part of why this play has become what it is. We're running out of time, and I just want to highlight one more line that that shows off Singh's brilliance. Um, the, the Bartley has left, and he didn't get his blessing. So the daughters not only are they looking to comfort the mother, but they also need her out of the room so they can check out the clothes. So they say, hey, "Run down and meet Bartley at the." spring so that you can give him your blessing and send him off with your blessing oh and because the stones are slippery take this stick well, what stick was that I'm, I'm summarizing a lot obviously what stick this was the stick that michael brought home from con connemara and mora taking this stick to go out for this her the son that she believes is dead michael to go out and see her other son who she believes is going to die because he's going out on the sea in a very dangerous moment she says in the big world the old people do be leaving things after them for their sons and children. But in this place, it is the young men do be leaving things behind for them that do be old. Oof. I mean, holy cow. Yeah. Is that good or what? <laughs> it's heartbreaking. Yeah. This description of the children leaving things behind for their old parents when they die, yeah. when the children die, is just the, that backwards world, that upside. Oh, my gosh. It is a uh, oh gosh. Yeah, it's the no parent should have to bury their child. That like, yeah, that 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 hor that horrible grief that is being held. Um, and and this this kind of it's it's so I agree. It's that so, there's so much prop work in this play, and it's great. Um, that that little prop. Um, you know, you don't you you never get it talked about ever again. But uh, you get this great line with it, and you kind it kind of bears this like almost talisman esque energy, which she carries to the interaction, and she sees Michael there um as she as she holds the staff that michael brought brought from Connemara, yeah mass masterful stuff all packed into like 20 pages um just, it's incredible just how much sing gets into this, this this short script i mean this is the kind of play where a lot happens outside the words and since you know play scripts are often highlight the words it, it this seems shorter than it is again it's like 15 20 pages but it plays like 45 minutes so it's it's longer than it seems because so much happens in silence and in movement and in atmosphere it's it's yeah it's in that echelon of scripts where you really need to do some script analysis on it. it doesn't it doesn't give you everything that's happening sometimes there are lines you know a half a page later that uh, uh are cued off of an action a half a page ago um and you got you got to yep. do your script analysis for this and be sure that you're cueing things with proper blocking and prop interaction it's great great script uh we could i feel like we could definitely talk more and more about it um uh alas we are out of time on this particular podcast episode to do so. However, we'd love to keep chatting about it with you. Uh, we, we loved getting to extend the conversation out into podcast land and extend the uh, invitation to engage the conversation over on our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites and... Uh, start chatting with us about it. We'd love to chat about it with you. We'd love to be a space that cultivates the conversation around these uh, plays as well. So chat with each other about it. Um, find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about Riders to the Sea with you. 
Absolutely. If you've liked this conversation, any of the other conversations in our themed month or this season or the life of the podcast, if you've enjoyed your time with us, please recommend us to your family, your friends, anybody you know that likes theater, scripts, writing, conversations about stories and how they work. Send them our way. We are on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, uh, and also YouTube and also other kind of offshoot places where you find your podcast but those are the major ones and we are there with our episodes for you you can also like us on facebook and a link to the new episode appears every monday in your feed it's a great way to get those folks who aren't quite tech savvy but have a facebook they can just like us and it should show up for them every monday if they want to click and listen from there We've got one more week in our themed month, one more short play to discuss. Looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, one left until that next week when we are talking about another of theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script. No Script.